Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories in In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done Good evening, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight on NASA Stop Child Abuse Now radio show. I'm your host for tonight, Dr. Nancy B. Brown-Willis, and I'm with my wonderful co-host, Ms. Kim Lakin, and we are honored to be here with you guys tonight. We are on scan number 3088. If you'd like to join us, please feel free to call in at 646 595 Again, that number is 646-595-2118. And again, we're on scan number 3088. I'm going to start with our mission statement. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone. And two, offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse, and information for anyone interested in the many issues involved in prevention, intervention, and recovery. We have uh, two wonderful guests tonight. They are Dale and uh, Ms. Faith. We're very honored to have you guys tonight. Again, if you'd like to join the panel, feel free to call 646-595-2118. And we are on scan number 3088. All right, Ms. Kim, take us away. Hey, thank you. Yes, today's special guests are a sweet dear couple, Dale and Faith Ingraham, and they are from New York, Addison, New York, returning family, NASCA members, and um, we're so happy to have them back. Dale is a pastor who began his ministry in 1983. In 2020, Dale began to devote himself fully to the ministry of Speaking Truth and Love, a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, along with Faith, his partner and wife of nearly 40 years. So Faith is the survivor of child 
childhood sexual abuse. So, and Dale goes around and speaks. He's also a trainer, an author, and is a strong advocate for victims and survivors of abuse. Working together, they provide abuse prevention and response training to organizations, families, individuals, and churches, which we know is a need. They create safe places for growing and healing at conferences and speaking engagements with printed materials, private consultations, and life coaching. So in his book, Speaking Truth and Love, Dale addresses the topic of sexual abuse in a way that examines hard areas while maintaining sensitivity for those who fear that this issue is too difficult for them to examine. So I am going to, there's a few more lines here, but I'm going to just stop there so that Dale and Faith can tell their story. And, um, you know, as you know, you can start wherever you want. Dale and Faith, this is your show. And so when we turn it over to you, um, wherever you guys would like to so welcome. We're so happy to have you here this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Hi. So um, you. In, in your introduction, you, you um, referred to the fact that I'm a, a survivor of sexual abuse. I grew up in a pastor's home, and my dad was my um, abuser, and I was sexually abused by him from age 9 to 18. And I never told anyone for many, many different reasons. There are many reasons why a victim doesn't tell. Um, But when your abuser is someone who's supposed to love and protect you, you do not know who you can trust. So you don't trust anyone. And so you don't talk to anyone, um, which is the case with me. And when I became an adult, um, I died. My uh, survival skill, the main survival skill that I used was that I died emotionally. And so when I became an adult and I got married, I figured that I was healed because I didn't have a lot of the negative emotions that um, some survivors have to deal with, depression, anger, bitterness, um, all of those things I didn't feel because I I was basically numb. So I thought that I was healed. And, you know, everything was happened was in the past and I didn't have to deal with it. Then in 2006, my dad molested my niece. And it was that event that kind of shook me awake to the fact that we that we never dealt with what he had done to me, which was a criminal act. Um, and we, at that point, Dale was a pastor. My parents attended our church. We had to deal with my dad's criminal activity as a family, through the legal system, and as a church, and we realized how little training church leaders have on dealing with abuse when it happens in a church environment, and what basically we're we're not taught anything about it. We just, it's almost assumed that it doesn't happen, 
And that's why we started Speaking Truth and Love Ministries to help equip church leaders, but also to provide a place for survivors and help them to um, get healing from their abuse. Yes, and Faith and I met at at Bible College, and I remember um, when we were dating and then getting serious, um, Faith was able to tell me about the time we were engaged that she had been sexually abused by her dad. And it was obvious it was a very horrific thing for her to to have to disclose, and I know it was very difficult for her. Um, yeah, and we made some huge mistakes. And I, a lot of the mistakes we made was basically because of lack of knowledge. And I think that, you know, coming from a pastor's perspective, I still think an awful lot of our people in our churches have a great lack of knowledge about the issue of childhood sexual abuse and and abuse-related issues. And that's one of the goals for our ministry is to try to educate churches um, and raise awareness about what's going on and, and how to prevent it, and then how do you deal with it? How do you respond when it does happen? Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that you guys are doing that. What? What? I think it's, um, mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, um, you know, there's so much uh, that I can relate to as far as the, the abuse and uh, it being a father and um and the family not knowing how to deal with it and not knowing how to address it um did you who did you tell in your family first? Did you talk to a counselor, a family member, a friend school um, at school? How old were you i Dale was probably the first person that I told when okay. I was Eighteen, my mom actually caught my dad in the act. So, mm-hmm. and then she asked me, "Well, what do you want? What did I want her to do?" And I said, "I just want it to stop." And mm-hmm. we never really talked about it after mm-hmm. that. So I didn't talk to anybody at school. I was very, very shy, um, mm-hmm. very closed down. You know, I didn't talk to very many people. Because I think a lot of it had to do with the abuse. I just shut down and kept everything bottled up. So I didn't really have um, people that I talked to. Mm -hmm. And then Dale was the first person that I told um, before we were engaged. I told him, but I didn't go into any detail. I just told him that my dad had abused me and that was about, that was the extent of what I told him. Um, so I, I was very, I think partly because as a victim, you, even though it's not your fault, a lot of times you feel shame and so you just, you kind of keep everything, at least I did. I kept everything just bottled up inside of me. Mm -hmm. How old do you remember how you were when the abuse started? I was around nine. Mm-hmm. So, I, um, mm-hmm. what were you going to say? 
What were you going to say? I was always a very compliant, very shy, quiet, introverted child, even before the abuse. But I think after the abuse started, I even withdrew more. Of course. Yep. We can understand. I know Miss Kim as well can uh, definitely understand uh, that that it's a very sensitive topic because, you know, when when we talk about recovery and all of that, it's very complex. And especially when you love the person, you know, that's abusing you. And a lot of people don't understand that part of it. You don't want to get them in trouble. You know, you don't want them to go to jail. You don't want, it's like, even though they're hurting you, you don't want to hurt them and you're protecting them. And then, um, when it spills over, and, you know, I don't want to get into that right this second, but when it does spill over and it hurts someone else, because I went through that as well, I can relate. Um, one of my sisters, um, she took her life. You know, she went through abuse as well. And so when you see the effect of not telling, you know, now you have another type of pressure on you, and it's just a lot. You know, people don't, they just don't really understand. It's very difficult to to explain, like you right. care about this, person and it's like people are like, how could you care? Like they don't understand how complex it is, you know. Yeah. But um, many of us do understand, it. and um, and so um, when you were growing up and you were going to school, did you um, did you make any friends at all at school, or were you still? Kind of like post off to yourself. Were you bullied, or you know? I wasn't really bullied, but I was. I kept myself. I had a few, um, a few friends. Now I have eight brothers, and I'm the only girl. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I was even isolated at home, to, to some extent. I mean, my, my brothers respected. They treated me well. They were very respectful of me, but there were eight of them, so they would, and I was a girly girl. I was, I didn't do sports or anything like that. So they were always, you know, doing sports things and hanging out together. So even at home, I kind of isolated myself. Um, You know, I did my thing, they did their thing. And I think we were all surviving our own trauma, because my dad, he sexually abused me, but he was emotionally abusive to everyone in the family and um, physically abusive to some of my brothers. So it's like you're all in this survival mode where where we're all um, surviving, so you don't, it's almost like you're not a, family unit, it's us against him, it's him against each one of us. Mm-hmm. And um, when he was physically abusive to your brothers, was your mom ever physically abused or did she used to stand up for them? Or My mom, was the, my mom was the primary breadwinner. Um, mm-hmm. My dad pastored very small churches that could not support um, our family. So my mom was working full-time, 
so there were times that my dad was the caretaker, so to speak. And so she wasn't there usually when the abuse happened. Um, and she was he was very emotionally abusive of my mom as well. So she was a victim too. I don't think she knew the extent of what was going on and we never, you know, we didn't want to add to her her suffering, so to speak. So we really didn't talk to her about it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Miss Kim? Hi. Yeah, I'm so sorry, Faith, that you had to go through all that. It's all about it. You know, it breaks my heart as a little girl who um, I know just wanted to have love from their dads. And, um, you know, I'm, so I'm sorry that you had to go through that. I, I do relate a lot to a lot what you were saying. A couple of my questions you answered. Um, and do you still have a relationship with your brothers today? That was, I guess, another question I have. Do you have a relationship with some of your brothers? Yes, I do. Um, all of my brothers are very, very supportive of me. Um, when when this came out with my niece, I wrote all of my brothers a letter, and I said, you know, I told them that I had been abused by my dad, and I was going to stand up for my niece, and I was not going to protect my dad and pretend like everything's okay that he does. And they... They were in support of me. A lot of them called me up and said they were sorry that I had gone through the abuse. I don't think, I think most of them didn't even realize that I had, I had been abused in that way. Um, and they were, you know, it was news to them when I did share that with all of them. And when my mom was killed in an accident, a few years ago, several years ago, and we had to, you know, as a family, um, had to go through my parents, do different things, and I told my brothers that I could not be in their house because they had to clean out, um, clean their house and do different things and figure out what to do with everything. And I told them that I couldn't emotionally be in that house and they all accepted it, and they said, we'll take care of all of that. You don't need to worry about it. So they're very, very supportive of me and very, you know, I have a loving relationship with all of them. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because I know, well, I know that my brother, my younger brother, didn't know anything that was going on with me either. And, um, you know, they make sure that, they are alone, you know, that they're not going to get caught. There just seems to be they know how to get around and even with nine brothers and, and a mom in the house, he still was able to speak in. Yeah. So I'm sorry then. Yeah. That yeah. I think that as we've mm-hmm. talked about before, I'll bet your faith has played yeah. a huge part in in recovery and being able to forgive and so I love that I love that about you guys (laughs) when when I said I didn't really talk to anybody I did my relationship with with God even as a child 
that's who I went to. That's who I prayed to and found comfort in and knew that he did care. You know, sometimes you doubt, you know, where is he and why why are these things happening? But actually it was that my faith in, in God, even as a child, that I think kept me in a healthier place um, than I might have been otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think, well, I definitely think it was for me, too, yeah. is just having that that foundation that I was able to kind of build on and, and go to whenever I needed anything and needed to be loved. You're getting it on at home. Yeah. Yeah, well, I wanted, um, I'll just, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wanted to um, ask Mr. Dale, if, um, Mr. Dale? Yes. Okay. Have you had any experience in your family with abuse, like different forms of abuse in the past? So, I mean, the family I grew up in, um, there were five of us kids, uh, four boys, one girl, and there was a lot of brokenness there. Um, I don't believe there was any sexual abuse. I mean, we got we got a lot of um, spankings with a belt, with switches from the tree. So we had lots of welts and bruises and and that kind of thing. Um, our mom and dad took us to church every time the church was open. So I had accepted the Lord when I was a, a child. And I think also my relationship with the Lord kind of was my anchor growing up. But I never felt connected to my family. I always felt alone when I was growing up. Um, so it was a different it was a different type of abuse, and certainly not to the extent of a lot of the folks that we minister to just go through horrific abuse. And in the, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I find that so staggering is the fact that there's little difference between the church community and the non-church community when it comes to abuse issues. It seems to be as prevalent um, as it is out in the secular world. Yeah. I think think that Christians oftentimes think that when an order – to deal with abuse, they think that forgiveness is the only answer, and they lack the accountability. And you need, I mean, it's loving to hold somebody accountable or to want them to behave in a a manner that is not abusive. And a lot of times we think that if we're, if we are, confrontational to somebody who's abusive that we're the ones that are being ungodly or unforgiving or unloving and um, mm-hmm. a lot of times it's, it's more loving to, to say to somebody hey what you're doing is not right and it's not good and it's not healthy but we often feel uncomfortable confronting an abuser and saying, hey, what you're doing is not right. 
You're very right. Especially when, when we're being taught, you know, forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. Right. Um, right. And we don't understand that forgiveness is a process. Yeah. And there's a process to forgiveness. And, yes, you can forgive right away for your own health, for your own sanity, for your own spiritual uh, spiritual health. But there is a process. And then there are people who, I mean, it's, it's not like um, – a one-time mistake type of thing. Some people, they're aware of what they're doing, and they do it long-term, and then they do it to other people. And then now it becomes, this is a safety issue. There's a safety hazard, you know, for the community and uh, for children, and we have to put them first. And And so, um, yeah, you're right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, one of the things at our conferences that tell people is that I was 95% ignorant about abuse uh, back when I met Faith at college. And it, of course, this is a Bible college, but the 5% that I would know about abuse is I knew what it was. I knew what sexual abuse was, I knew what domestic violence was, but I had no clue beyond that, the extent of abuse, how prevalent it is, you know, the damage it causes, all of that stuff. Um, we just weren't taught it. Nobody in churches, there are, you know, no one teaches it. The pastors don't. The Sunday school teachers don't. As a rule, I know today you're, there are some pastors who are more outspoken from the pulpit, but there's still um, kind of a dearth of information or teaching on these issues. And so when Faith and I got engaged and we got married for quite a few years, we were married in 1984, and up until 2006, we maintained a, a fairly normal relationship with Faith's mom and dad. Now, we didn't let our kids go spend the night there, and, you know, we did, didn't do certain things. And we would, we would have thought that we were, were being careful with our children. And, I mean, now, what we know now is a lot different than that. I mean, a child just is not safe in the presence of an offender. It doesn't matter if there's a crowded room there. We've, you hear from so many victims of abuse that are sexually abused at family gatherings. Um, offenders are incredibly bold, and um, this stuff just happens all the time. So, you know, one of the things that we've tried to do since we started our ministry in 2008 is is educate ourselves um, as well as, you know, turn around and going into churches and conferences and help educate other people about these issues. Well, that's great that you're taking, you know, the experiences that you've been through and you're understanding that there was purpose behind that and it's grown into you're walking in the ministry and you're helping others. Um, When did you meet uh, and this question is for Faith. When did you meet Dale? How did you meet Dale, Mr. Dale? So we were we were both attending um, Practical Bible College, which is out near Binghamton, New York. We were both attending there. It's a small Bible college, and um, he was he was a junior. I was a freshman. So all of the students. Pretty much you get to know everybody that goes there. So we met there, and then we started dating, and then eventually got engaged, and 
been married, of course. Mm-hmm. And what made you so comfortable? I know you said you never really shared your story, the details of it with anyone. Um, what made you feel comfortable to open up and share with him? You know, sometimes when people share, and that's why I had asked them earlier, um, have you ever been through abuse? Sometimes people share because they're like, hey, I've been through this, me too, da da da. And then sometimes just people just make you feel safe. And he has a background of some form of understanding of, you know, other forms of abuse. And so he has that empathy and that kind of, you know, sensitive place in his heart to be able to, and then he has a relationship with the Lord, so that always helps as well for his heart um, acceptance. So what what made you feel comfortable opening up to Mr. Dale? I knew that we were getting serious, and I knew that my abuse was, it impacted my my comfortableness with being serious with somebody, I was kind of afraid um, because I had, had been hurt so deeply that I was, it was mainly I was scared of getting too close to somebody, um, but it was it was a very difficult thing for me to open up to him, and I, but I did it so that we knew if we were going to go forward in our relationship that we were going to be dealing with with some issues um, because I, it was at that point I knew that I had been impacted, the trauma. You know, I didn't know the name for everything, but it I knew that it was going to impact my relationship um, with whoever I married because of, the depth of the emotions of being abused by someone who's supposed to love and protect you. It, um, so mainly I, I shared because I knew it was going to impact our relationship and I wanted to get it out in the open so that we could deal with it. That was good. And then, Mr. Dill, how what did you think when she told you that, that story, her background? Well, we had actually, probably the four or five months leading up to the point where she was able to tell me that her dad had sexually abused her, um, you could kind of tell there was a bit of a wall in in the relationship. You know, it kind of goes so far as in terms of communication and and you kind of get close to a certain extent. So I, I really had felt like there was probably something there. Um, So I wasn't, I mean, it's always shocking to hear part of someone's story because it's just, it's unreal what adults are willing to do to children. It makes no sense to me. But Mm -hmm. I had kind of anticipated at that point that it's likely something had happened. Obviously, I didn't know it was her father who had done it until she was able to share that with me. Um, and, you know, I could tell it was very painful for her to do that and um, and very difficult. So, but I've, you know, I've done my, I've, I've tried to be an encouragement to her. 
my understanding about abuse didn't really start to till 2006. So we're married in 84. And I think, you know, on 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 a certain level I was understanding and and loving um with what she had gone through, but I did not even come close to really understanding the depth of it till November of 2006 when her dad had uh, molested uh, one of her nieces and that's when Faith and I sat down and I was going to go confront uh, dad with what he had just done with two of her brothers and I I said I'm going to confront him with what he did to you Mm -hmm. so I, I need to know more and and that's when I found out that it was it was rape, and the duration, you know, the the years that that went on, um, you know, of course, was staggering. And so that was in the fall of 2006, year of 2007. And, and Face Dad did get reported to the authorities with what happened to her niece, hmm. and so we were kind of following that. That court case, he eventually pled uh, guilty, but did no jail time. And it was in 2007 we started talking about wanting to start a ministry. And so we were talking about, you know, what does that look like if we do a ministry? What is it? You know, what are our presentations going to be? So we were working on that. We did our first presentation in February of 2008, and that's the first time that they shared her her story publicly um, in person. Uh, We did a presentation at our church in January of 2008, and Faith had pre-recorded audio of herself, her testimony, and uh, put some slides with it. And so we did that at church. Uh, That was kind of the, the actual launch for our ministry. And then our church, even though I still pastored there until 2020, they gave us a lot of time to travel and speak, and they were just very supportive of the ministry. And God just kind of worked it out in um, the end of 2019 and the early part of 2020 where we could do this full time. Wow. That was such a blessing. So yeah. did you say you did you get a chance to actually uh, confront the father? I did. Yeah, okay. it's. I'll never forget the scene. Um, I went there with two of Faith's brothers. The one of the brothers was the father of the girl that. Uh, well, they they were foster parents, and they were in the process of adopting uh, this girl that Dad molested. And I, so he was one of the brothers, then a younger brother who was a youth pastor. So we went to confront him. Mom went in another room, uh, kind of away from the conversation. But when we walked in the house. Dad sat on the other side of the room on the couch, and he had an open Bible beside him on the couch, and he had his left hand over on the Bible. And immediately before we could say anything, he started talking about all the stuff he was learning and God was teaching him and just going on and on. I finally I stopped him, and I said, you know, we've got some things that we need to say, and you need to listen. And so we got our coats off, and we sat down. And the two brothers uh, and and myself, we we took turns confronting Dad with, now we knew he had multiple victims. It wasn't just Faith and it wasn't just um, 
her niece. We were hearing of other victims. And oh. so we confronted him. And Dad was not, he, he made excuses. It was, um, you know, two sides to every story. He had, you know, little different things that he would say. One of the things we picked up on really quick, um, he resigned our church right away because he knew we were going to deal with him. And he so he didn't want that. So um, when, after we confronted him that night, um, he went and got an attorney and, and rather than make a confession. So he was turned in the authorities. He was arrested and went to trial. But he would, he would use this term, incestuous relationship. So he knew he'd been caught. He knew that people at church were going to hear. So he would use these terms to try to somehow make the evil of what he had done seem not as bad. So he'd throw the word relationship in there, which clearly implies that it's a mutual thing, which is a bunch of junk. You know, it, it's, it wasn't mutual, and it, it never is mutual. No. Um, but they have clever ways to try to minimize and excuse so yeah, he was not he was not sorry, he was not repentant till the day he died. He died a few years ago. Um and even though he was a pastor, um you know, I I'm convinced he's not in heaven. Um, you know, there's no evidence of God in his life, even though he could tell you some Bible verses and stand up front and talk to you during a message. This was a pattern for is much of his life that we can, that we know of, for many years. And mm-hmm. I, I think there are, I mean, I think there are offenders that, that truly do repent and and want to get things right. But you have to admit that what you're doing is wrong, and you know, not not just be sorry that you got caught, but be sorry for what what pain and suffering that you have caused to other people um, and not just want to get out of the consequences. You know, true repentance, you ex- you accept the consequences of your actions. And if that's jail time, then that's one of the, the consequences. The victims deal with the consequences right. for the rest of their life. You know, they they can have healing and um, overcome the trauma, but there are there are scars that that they and just different things that um, it has affected their life. And you know, it's and I know we all have sin and we all do things that that we need to um, confess and and get right, but I mean, when you hurt other people, especially you commit crimes against other people, you need to be willing to accept consequences of those actions. Yeah, and the other thing is, which obviously, you know, you both know and and your listeners know, um, but abuse is never the fault of the victim. I remember one time Faith was sharing her story, and it was a fairly large group of people. And she ended um, sharing her story, and, and she made the statement that 
if you've gone through abuse, that that's not your fault. And on the other side of the room from where we had a table set up, there was an older gentleman that just broke out sobbing, and there was a lady next to him that touched his arm and asked him if he was okay. And he said yes, but he said that I needed to hear that. And we never were able to talk to him. It was The lady came and told us the story later. But you know, here's an older gentleman who's carried a heavy burden his whole life and apparently has felt the weight like it was somehow his fault or the abuse was partly his fault. And just hearing the words, it's not your fault, was Mm -hmm. such a relief to him. Wow. It's so true. You become a prisoner of what they did, and you feel like, you know, it's your fault. And and just like uh, what you were saying when you confronted him and he was using certain words, relationship, because you're doing it and because you're, um, you know, doing it, you're not, you're doing what they're asking you to do. You're not telling anyone. They're now, hey, you know what's going on. You knew about it. You must have liked it. I mean, you were part of it. They they now is so manipulative and, and tries to put you now, like if you're consenting and that's what you wanted to do because you're doing it and you're not telling and a lot of people carry that guilt because you keep on doing it and you keep not telling. And mm-hmm. so, um, but they don't know that there's a lot of mental abuse that comes with that, psychological, you know, there's very manipulative, don't tell, there's a secret, don't tell. Then you worry that the person's going to get in trouble and so you don't tell. And then you're fighting in your mind, do I tell, who? should I tell, if I tell this could happen. I mean, it just puts so much pressure on this child. And right. it's just so, it's so abusive. Yeah, one of the and books that Faith yeah. has that she read early on um, in 2007, that the, the woman in there was a psychologist, and she said in the book that the number, like the first step to healing is being able to tell your story. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the, from the, a pastor's perspective or a church's perspective, most pastors and churches are not comfortable with abuse survivors talking about what they've gone through. And if it's something that's recent, they just want to get this over with so it doesn't, you know, in their minds destroy the church or cause a scandal or whatever. So what we often wind up doing is forcing victims back into silence because we're not comfortable or we're afraid of what might happen. And so the very thing that can help set victims free or at least maybe the beginning of their healing journey to be able to share their story. We don't want to share it. That's one of the reasons I I titled the book when I wrote it, Tear Down This Wall of Silence, and that's kind of what I'm referring to there is that locking victims away in that prison of silence. And mm-hmm. it's really sad that, that, yeah, the abuser is maybe the first one that puts them in that silence, but then, you know, pastors and many Christians wind up, we do the same thing. And, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know, like, what you were referring to, when you're a child and you're, you have that love-hate relationship with your, with your offender, you know, you love them because 
they do they are your your parent and they do at times do loving things for you and you're you're afraid that if you tell go to the authorities what's going to happen to your family what's going to happen to you are you going to be put in a foster home where you have to learn new survival skills um that's what went through my mind you know it's like okay i can survive where i am i know the rules here um this is how i survive but i didn't you don't there are so many unknowns if you come forward with abuse in a family situation because you're you feel responsible if somebody goes to jail, you feel responsible if the family's um loses an income or the the kids get farmed out to different places. You know, it's the victim feels responsible for for the consequences to the family when abuse comes to light. And and that's a big burden on any child. Um, um, You said something that was really important, Um, a very quick short story. One of my friends in school was being uh, sexually abused by her father, and she said something to a teacher. She said something kind of to us a little bit, and then the teacher heard, and then the teacher contacted whoever she contacted, and then the little girl took back her story like, no, 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 because imagine, you know, like you said, once you tell... Now it becomes a big deal, and now goes down a chain of command. Now goes from you know your first responder, um, you know you you're um, you're supposed to tell. Uh, period. Right. That's what happens when you're in the um, in this type of service, and so now you have to tell, and it just goes down the chain of command, and it does have a big effect, and and it does change the dynamic of the family, it affects everybody. Now, you had all these siblings. It wasn't just going to be just you. It was going to affect the family, your mother. It just puts a lot of pressure on the victim. It does. It does. Yeah. It's, it's, that's why it's not an easy thing to deal with abuse within a family because mm-hmm. it it's so complicated, you know, and it's right. not just, Okay, we move this person here and that person there. It everybody is affected. Everybody in the whole family, and then even in the extended family, and people are wondering, okay, now what? Do, what's Aunt Mary going to say, and what's Uncle Joe going to say? All of those things. It's just it just really makes things very com- complicated. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone who didn't believe you or take his side on his family? Um, I think when I came when it came forward, it I didn't come forward to anybody else besides Dale um, until until my niece was molested. But everybody in my family believed me. Um, nobody in his even on his side, like my my aunts um, on his side, they believed me because there were enough red flags and they knew that I wasn't a person to make up stories. Um, So 
you know, I did feel like they supported me. We did have, um, and our, I mean, our church was amazing in terms of supporting us, but there were a few, a few people at church that were bound to determine to, they were going to like protect that or whatever, and they would come up to faith. Uh, the, there was one woman that came up in in kind of a aggressive, accusatory. She would come up every Sunday and say, "Well, how's your dad doing?" Like it was her responsibility to make sure her dad was okay. Just different things. And um, I had a uh, to confront her and her husband both. He was actually on my deacon board, um, and. Uh, it was interesting. I told them I, it was a pretty heated conversation I had with both of them. They were both on the phone. And I said, you know, you guys need to educate yourself about offenders. And I was telling them some of the stuff today. I said, well, I'm I'm reading a book now. He said, it's called How How Women Seduce Pastors. And I said, I said if you think that a nine-year-old girl and a 14-year-old girl seduced my father-in-law. I said, you're sick. And that was that was the end of the conversation, and, and fortunately they were never back to church, so that didn't right. disappoint me. You know, I mean, we have to confront people. I mean, sometimes the way it's like people have lost their minds when it comes to sexual abuse, and they will they will – bend over backwards to excuse the behavior of someone who's mm-hmm. done something evil and they'll blame a child and in any other scenario we wouldn't do it that way if it was a different crime nobody's going to do it that way but with sexual abuse it's just the strangest thing sometimes how people react it is very weird yeah it's very um, and it's a, like like we said, you know, it's the family. It hits the family hard. They don't know how to take it because that person many times is the favorite son, the favorite grandson, the favorite daughter, the favorite granddaughter, the favorite aunt, the favorite uncle. And people have a really hard time believing that such monstrosities could happen behind closed doors, and and they just don't want to believe that. That they're struggling with that because they know them on a different level. Yeah, I know that. Mm -hmm. Jesus talked about being aware of the wolf in sheep's clothing, and when it comes to someone being sexually abused, you know, everybody else in the church, and and even in the book of Jude, uh, the next to the last book in the Bible, there's a warning because men have crept in, it says, unnoticed, and they're using the grace of God as a license to sin. People coming into the church to take sexual advantage of children and vulnerable adults, and the reason we don't recognize them is they're in the sheep's clothing. They 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 may be well-dressed, they may be very professional, they may be polite. The only one that sees the wolf is the victim. And that's why in so many cases, uh, especially we're talking about you know mega-pastors, mega-preachers, that may be nationally known or, or internationally known, and then all of a sudden we find out they've been sexually abusing, you know, women that were employed there or sexually abusing children, and everybody is shocked and people will defend them, but it's because they see the sheep. They don't see the wolf. You know, the victim mm-hmm. sees the wolf. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, too, we don't want to believe that somebody that we trusted could do the, those things. So our first response when we hear that somebody that we love and respect has done something that we know is horrible, our first response is, oh, that can't be true. But there's so many people don't ever want to get past that, oh, that can't be true. They they want to only look at evidence that reinforces that that can't be true. And so the victim saying it is true, it makes them uncomfortable because they trusted this person and now they don't know who they can trust now. And it it just seems like that's the norm. The norm is to um, re-victimize victims and minimize and excuse offenders. Yes. To re-victimize. It's definitely a form of re-victimization because, again, you're fighting, you know, to try to gain that strength to tell on this person And then now you have everyone else looking at you like, how could you, or why would you say that, or, you know, you're wrong, or they just stay quiet, or they stay away, and they don't support you. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's very difficult, because you're, you become, you feel alone, and people wonder why the suicide rate goes up. You know, people don't have support. They don't have someone that believes them and is standing next to them, holding their hand as they're walking in the journey. I mean, I know it's a very, very difficult journey uh, and to be able to have support systems um, like you have your husband, you know. Um, Some people, they don't have anybody um, to walk with them. So it's great that you guys are becoming stronger together to empower others and be that support system to help others through. It's a very difficult road. Very difficult. Yeah, and I imagine you have um, you guys have been doing this program for a lot of years now, and you probably have a lot of listeners that you guys are the lifeline, that, and a lot of them may have literally no one, which is, it doesn't make sense, that the, but the family will often turn on the victim. Coworkers will often turn on the victim if they try to speak up. And so people feel very isolated and um, and alone through this. Oh, and I think yes. that's why I think that's why a lot of people um, recant when they do report abuse, and they have they're re-victimized and they're questioned and their their reputation gets called into question and all of these things. Then they they say I want they don't want to fight anymore and they're mm-hmm. of the fight and so they'll say oh well I guess it didn't happen you know because they want things to go back at least to some some sort of normalcy it just seems like it gets worse and worse instead of better and I think Very the perpetrator re- relies on the fact that he is able to have people around him that are enabling this whole thing. And yeah. then they all realize that. They know who yeah. he is. And so that's how they get away with it for so long. 
Now, did he mm-hmm. ever, was he ever prosecuted at all? My dad? Uh-huh. He was, he got six years probation for what he did to my niece. Um, so he never went to jail, never jail time, but he was, he was on the registry, but he was on the lower end of the registry, so not as a well, high profile. Another thing that we've noticed is he never, he was never charged with abusing faith, and that's another thing that the state laws have changed a lot um, since, you know, Faith told me we were married in 84, so she told me probably in 82 that she had been abused. Um, if it never, I don't think it once crossed my mind when Faith told me she'd been sexually abused by her father. It, I don't think it ever crossed my mind that maybe we should report him to the authorities. And I don't know why, but again, it, there's no teaching on it. So in New York State back then, it was five years after you turned 18. So 23 years, and then statute limitations ran out. But now, in, in a lot of states, those statute limitations have been done away, um, which is a really, really good thing. But so with her dad, you know, he wound up just doing a plea deal. But when the abuse is within the family, at least in New York State, and I know this varies in other states, but when the abuse is within the family, it goes to family court. So it's a whole different court system. And um, you've got judges that that may have no training uh, when it comes to trauma and sexual abuse, and they're trying to make, you know, major decisions. So a lot of times in family court they get the slap on the wrist, they get one year in county jail, which almost always means six months because they're out in good behavior. And um, we had a case at our church after we started our ministry where uh, there was a a girl that was abused by an uncle, got that, you know, typical year in the county jail and out in six months. But because he would not cooperate with the mandated counseling and group therapy and all that, he did wind up going to prison for quite a few years. But we had a similar situation about the same time where it was somebody, the the abuser was outside the family unit, and he wound up getting 12 years for almost the same thing. So uh, it, it does a lot of times when it's within the family unit, the abuser and the victim, and it goes to family court, um, the sentencing just is not strong enough. I'm glad they got rid of, uh, in some states, uh, I don't think that there should be a statute of limitation because, I mean, it takes some people, there's been times I've spoken to certain uh, survivors, men and women, and they don't start telling their story till they're in their 50s, you know. And so... Uh, unfortunately, I think that if the person doesn't go to jail, at least it should be something on their record. Something yeah. should still be done because, I mean, people need to know. I mean, this could be your next-door neighbor who, you know, um, you have children, and this next-door neighbor is uh, the grandfather of there, and your kids go over there. Uh, exactly. And you, 
you know, that's the same family. They're your neighbors for years, but you don't know about the background. And I think that even if it's been years, at least there should be some type of alert. Even if they don't go to jail after a certain amount of years, there still should be something that alerts parents. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, yeah, like you said, a lot of, I think a lot of people emotionally, they're not ready to handle um, coming forward with their stories until they're in their 40s or 50s. Um, I, you know, you're, your mind is is incredible how your brain keeps things inside until you're ready to process that. I At least that's how I felt. Like, now I'm ready to bring this out and, and deal with the trauma and find the healing that I need. Um, and I'm, you know, emotionally I can look at it in a more mature way. Well, and I think too, um, and I and I'm, you know, again curious a bit where where listeners are at who've gone through abuse if they're on a healing journey because I know with Faith, so her healing journey really began in 2006 when she when she first told her story. She wrote that letter to her brothers and her mom, and that probably started the clock ticking on her healing journey. And sometimes when you start that healing journey, it's more painful than it was before because now you're processing. And I think I think it's easy for abuse survivors to get discouraged when they finally come out and they, they're, they're maybe willing or feel ready or able to start processing stuff and talking to people, but then because they get re-victimized. Um, and Nancy, I think you used that term about re-victimization. Um, and that's a very painful thing to experience. We've had so many survivors tell us that, that like what the church or people in the church did to them was actually worse than being raped. Um, and, it's just so painful to go through. So sometimes when you start out on that healing journey, it's very difficult, but you've got to kind of walk that road if you're going to really get through that and, and kind of move from being a victim to, you know, being victorious. You've got to go through that, that difficult journey. Definitely. Ms. Kim? So yeah, tell us tell us a little bit more about what you do, Debbie, what you say, and um, and just some information that you give people when you go out and speak. If we do, uh, we do everything from a, a full weekend conference, which can be a Friday night, Saturday, and, and Sunday morning. Um, we do everything from that to just a Sunday morning service, a half hour message, but. Um, so it depends a little bit on what we have for time frame, but we've got four primary areas. Um, one is uh, prevention. Um, you know, there's so many things we can do to help prevent abuse, and and so we we spend a lot of time on prevention. We talk about awareness. For me, awareness is like laying a foundation of understanding. We cannot. We cannot effectively deal with abuse or break the cycle of abuse 
unless we understand what's happening. So that's the awareness part. We talk about statistics. We talk about the impact of abuse. Um, and then we talk about, um, you know, hope and healing. And faith does a lot with hope and healing for survivors. It ultimately, I mean, Jesus is the answer. Um, and there's going to be a lot of healing that we aren't going to experience in this life. It's going to be, you know, when we're in heaven with him. Um, we also talk about accountability. And if we don't hold offenders accountable, all we're doing is is patching these kids up and sending them back out to be abused all over again. We, there's got to be accountability with offenders. And um, too many churches are trying to deal with this in-house and thinking that they can somehow counsel themselves and, and, and you know, reform these offenders. And the truth is the vast majority of offenders do not change. It's not impossible for them to change, but that's just the reality. Um, they usually don't. And when the churches try to handle that themselves... Then they become enablers. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, you know, when you enable somebody, then they don't need to change. There is no need to get things right. Um, so, yeah, so we talk about a lot of different things. And there's so much more information now on trauma and how it affects um, a person. And then healing from trauma, how how there can be healing. And, um, you know, I'm really thankful for the, you know, it seems like there's more and more information available today than even a few years ago and, and how the brain can re can process things and can um overcome trauma so it's you know it, there is hope for healing and there you know we don't have to stay a victim and and it's you know we have hope yeah that's so true Amen. there is hope um what would you say have you ever had to deal with any with depression or any type of um, suicidal ideations or anything like that? Have you ever dealt with anything on that level personally or just with some of the people that you speak to? We, we, I have not personally been suicidal or had suicidal thoughts, but some of the people that we, um, some victims that we know and and some people that we've ministered to they they have had suicidal thoughts, and we usually refer them to professionals um because we're not equipped, but we you know but yeah, we see uh, so many are doing self harm and i I do want to say one thing as a as a young pastor, I think I made a lot of mistakes when it comes to, you know, preaching against, you know, I'd be in the pulpit back in the 80s and 90s and, you know, preaching against rebellious teenagers. And mm-hmm. since we started our ministry, I, I'm just convinced that so much of what's happening with our young people and our young adults is coming out of brokenness and woundedness. It's not because... 
you know, they're trying to be rebellious or they're trying to be bad. They're just they're hurting so bad because they've gone through so much trauma and garbage. And and the reality is either nobody else knows about it or only a few other people know about it. And so we often as pastors and church leaders or just church parishioners kind of look down our nose at these young people because you know they're doing all this stuff and i i really am convinced that an awful lot of what we see going on with our young people and young adults is because they're hurting and they're looking for anything to bring hope and comfort and if and if we're not offering that within the faith community where are they going to go and so they many of them turn to drugs and other things and um it only hurts them more, but I think sometimes when when we don't love them like Jesus has told us to love them, that's where they're going to go. Well, it's true. You know, people uh, are in pain, and a lot of times they start to self-medicate, yeah. and uh, and they don't know how to. They just want the pain to stop, and um a lot of times, just reaching out for help, um, yeah. you know, stepping out of that that uh, that bubble, you just start isolating yourself and wanting to be not trusting people, which you know, all those things come, unfortunately, can come with uh, with a package of you know after abuse recovery. But um, seeking help and reaching out, there are people who are trained to deal with. Trauma recovery. There are therapists, there are doctors, uh, and there is there's hope out there. You're not alone. I know on the NASCA website we have a lot of resources, and uh, we have a lot of people that are available to speak and at least can refer um, to other coaches or other um, some of the doctors and some of the people that like you guys who come on and um, and have groups. So we can always recommend people and say, hey, you're not alone. There are these groups out here. There are these support groups. There are these, uh, you can come, we have support groups sometimes um, on the Zoom. And so it's, I think it's just people just need to know that they are not alone and really take that shame away from the story and take back that power and, and be able to, to get back that power. Really, it's a process, you guys. So thank you for all that you do. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a heavy ministry. You know, it's a very special ministry. It's a heavy ministry, like you said. People that you would think that would be on board, uh, whether it's people in different churches, whether it's people in the family, whether it's people in the community, you know, people are not educated and they don't know how to deal with it. Unfortunately, people don't take don't understand this until it happens to them. When it happens to them or in their family or their own children, unfortunately, which is really what we would prefer to prevent, but yeah. when it happens to them, then their heart, they have a different understanding, and now they're looking for that help, and then now they want everyone to support and believe them. But, you know, it's, it's the same thing that we go through. We expect that, especially from the sources that we would expect it from. But we have to remember that um, some people, they're just not trained in that area, and they've just never been through it. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly, right. And 
we do notice that a lot of times the pastors that um, have us come, um, you know, they've been impacted by it, whether it's personally or, you know, maybe a family member. Sometimes they've gone through uh, situations at the church, and and so they've experienced that. And, and a lot of times they're more open to uh, dealing with these kinds of issues. Yeah, but our goal right. is to get in there before all of it happens, because I find that too, you know, is that they'll call and they'll want somebody to come in and talk about it after it happens. So we right. just need to get them to start doing that yeah. before yeah. before yeah. anything happens. So we can, yeah. Yeah, yeah we're, the, our goal is to get to this before it gets too far and before it gets, um, you know, to the children. So now, um, when it comes to, again, when we're talking about the children, are there any resources for parents that you guys can share or um, or anything about maybe the group that you guys do, anything for the kids' recovery and then something for the adults' recovery? So there's – Faith usually has a, a resource sheet that we put out on our table, and I know – um, I don't have that right in front of me, but there are some really good stuff, even things that can be like in Sunday school class. They actually have some curriculum. I know that Bastavijan, um, who was with Grace, and um, he wrote some really good material uh, for kids uh, just to teach them uh, in a healthy way about their body and, and you know what's appropriate, what's not. So there are a lot of good resources out there, um, and our, you know, I've got the who book. Who is that, and, Dale? Yes, go ahead. Pastor who? I was just saying, Pastor who? Who was that? What was the name again? It was Bob. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, Boz Tavidjan, and um, Boz is actually uh, one of Billy Graham's grandsons. And he founded GRACE, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. And he, he stepped down, um, I think he's still on the board at GRACE, but Boz is practicing law, I believe, back in Florida. He was on uh, Liberty's, um, he was a law professor at Liberty for a number of years and, and was very active with GRACE. Uh, doing some independent investigations of uh, some of these large organizations. But um, he's had some really good material. Uh, we were at a SNAP conference where he had a table set up. Or actually, I think it was um, it was a different conference, not SNAP. I think it was Ashley Easter's conference that he was there and um, had a lot of good material. So there there are good resources out there for children and for parents to help prevent abuse. You know, I think the number one thing that churches can do to prevent abuse is educate the whole congregation. The more people are aware. There's a a book out that was written by a a guy named Patrick Crow, and it's called Serpents Among Us. And and Patrick was an, an investigator in the Rochester, New York area for a lot of years. And the book that he wrote, Serpents Among Us, is a, it's a 12-case study, 
12 different cases that he worked on. And in one of those cases, he talks about a father who was a perpetrator, had a young daughter, and he took the daughter over to meet a friend. So you have two young girls. He takes his daughter over, knocks on the door. Uh, the mom answers with her young daughter. So he steps inside with his daughter. They're inside the home for just a few minutes. The mom goes upstairs to get something for one of the girls. And while she's gone, the father has taken pornographic pictures of her daughter. In 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 it's like four minutes time. Parents, that's why I say awareness is so important. People have to be aware of the danger, and our our kids are, you know, they go on overnights. They they go to youth activities. They go to athletic activities. And we have to do a better job making sure that they're safe. And I think one of the things that parents can do is is keep that line of communication open. And there's so many books now that you can use to open that conversation with your kids about their body is their own and um, that they can tell, that they should tell um, when mm-hmm. something makes them uncomfortable and just make it another safety thing that you talk about that that you know your your body is your own only there's so many new books out there and i keep seeing more and more online that um parents can read to their children and they can talk about these issues and without scaring their kids but you know this is one of the things that we you know, you talk about with your kids. You, this is your body, and these are your private parts, that type of thing. But also make it um, comfortable for your kids to have that open conversation with you as parents so that if something does happen, they know that they can come to you and that you're not going to um make them feel like they're the one that's in trouble. And then yeah. find out what, you know, if something happens, you you need to find out what the resources are in your area, who, what counselors are available to help your children through trauma and different things. So, because every, every state is different, every area is different as to the resources that they have available. Right. And that's so true. I think you said something that's really important. It's important to open the lines of communication and make it a, a conversation that we're comfortable just having so that they know that we are that safe space that they can come to. You know, many of us didn't feel safe talking about it and coming forward for many years. And mm-hmm. so letting our children know or letting be, this new generation be uh, other children know, hey, I'm a safe space, and if something's going on, you can feel free to tell me. Um, Again, some people feel scared to tell because they know that after you tell, a lot of times it opens up a whirlwind, and there's no control of what happens next. 
And um, and so, you know, it's, it's a tough uh, situation for the victims. It's always a, a very difficult position to be in. But, you know, you're not alone. There is help. And you don't want to live that way. You don't deserve to live that way. There are people that will love you, will care for you, and you don't need to be in that type of dangerous situation. Many times uh, people get killed. You know, they're being abused, and the abuse gets worse, and then uh, they get older, and then they kill them uh, to prevent them from telling. So we just want to make sure that people know that you don't have to live that way, and there is help out there. You can't reach out. For the parents that are being educated, we have to learn to make the conversation safe, what type of words to use, how to open up the conversation, because it's really uncomfortable. Some parents feel, and I know I went through that, where I wanted to preserve my child's childhood, right? And I didn't want to open up their mind to things that they weren't, I mean, I wanted them to enjoy their childhood. I didn't want to open up their mind to perversion and the demonic perversion yep. that's out there, so evil, right? Yeah. But um, there's, there's safe ways to open up some of these conversations. I know that Miss um, Kim, she teaches a lot of classes as well um, yeah. to help parents, you know, on how to have these conversations. So sometimes we don't know how to open up the line of communication. I mean, I do because I just I study this obviously, but some people I know I didn't always know when I was a parent, and it was very scary and hard for me at one point. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're talking with Kim. Though the group is Darkness to Light, right, Kim? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of good groups out there, and I know Darkness to Light has a lot of good information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they are they um, are working on new curriculum right now too, so that's exciting. We get to get that out there, but um, I think. You know, one of the things that maybe we could throw out there, since we're talking about all of it, is, um, you know, there's a 1-800-CHILD-ABUSE hotline that people could call if they're, you know, in need. It's 1-800-FOR-A-CHILD. And then there's also a, a new suicide hotline number, which is 988. So um, that's that's all good information to just know if, if anybody is yeah, in need that. Yeah. But yeah, it's been really nice just chatting with you guys this evening. Thank you for coming on again. Thank You're you. welcome. We we enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, I'm sure have you on again. <laughs> so tell everyone how how else we can get a hold of you. Where I know some of the social medias you're not on any longer, but how else could they get a hold of you? Yeah, we I do have I've got quite a bit of stuff on YouTube, uh, but the best way, if, if someone wants to get a hold of us just to to talk or if they are interested maybe and have us come to their church or a small group, doesn't have to be a church setting, um, my cell phone number is 607-542-0316. And our website is speakingtruthandlove.org. Perfect. Uh, what's the social media? Do you guys have a page? I yeah we we have I have a Facebook page, Speaking Truth and Love, um, mm-hmm. and my and I'm on Facebook, but Dale isn't. So face 
Ingram, and our last name is spelled I-N-G-R-A-H-A-M. But but we do have a Facebook page, Speaking Truth in Love. I think that's that one. Yeah, and if anyone happens to be on Telegram, I am on Telegram, so they can look up Dale Ingram, and uh, we can even connect on Telegram as well. Okay. Okay. Well, great. So where are some of the places that you have scheduled? You told me that you have several things coming up. What have you got coming up? So the our we're speaking, we've got uh, in three churches in January. That's going to be here in New York. Um, our first actual seminar is going to be in February. That's a church right here in, in Painted Post, New York. And... Um, we're going to be at a conference in Ohio the end of March, a conference in western Pennsylvania. We're doing one with um, with Joy Forrest and called the Peace Ministries, so we're kind of teaming up with them for that one. That's also uh, mid-March, and uh, we've got a conference that we're going to be doing another one in Ohio in April, and we've got leads. We might be in California. I would love to get out to California this year. Uh, Faith has a cousin that um, goes to a church in California uh, in the Sacramento area that we might um, be coming to this summer. So hopefully we do lots of traveling. Faith said her favorite thing about traveling is coming home, and my favorite thing is leaving. (laughs) I love getting out of the road and traveling. Yeah. Do you guys usually drive? Are you drivers or flyers? We do. We do. We drive. What I'll do is if I get an opportunity to go someplace, Kim, if someone invites us to Colorado, then then what uh-huh. I do yeah. what I do is I plan stuff along the way. And a lot of times if yeah. I say, you know, we're going to be traveling through the area and, and then someone might have us come from a small church or whatever. Uh, but we'll go. It doesn't matter if it's a small group. Uh, we've got a group in Indiana we've gone back to a number of times. Uh, we're just looking for opportunities to minister and try to make a difference. Yeah. Well, thank you all for your heart and for getting out there and doing this work. Thank you. Thank you. We love you for it. <laughs> thank, thank you for your yeah. work. We appreciate you. Well, we hope to have you guys come on the show soon. Um, so we're, we have about two minutes left. Is there anything um, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think, I mean, I just from a, a pastor's heart, a lot of times abuse victims may feel like God doesn't love them, but he really does. God does care. God is not okay with abuse, and, and he is going to deal with it one day. And I... Um, just encourage people not to give up on on God because we need Him. Amen. Amen. Now more than ever. And there's so many people who feel alone. So I'm sure you know those words are definitely needed right right now more than ever. Like you said, Nicole. Anything you like to say, Nicole? What was that? Uh-huh. Anything you would like to say, Ms. Hope? You have about a minute. Yeah, just I just okay. want to reiterate, you know, God does love you, and I think that's that's where you can find hope. 
and look for a support group yeah. that people that you can bring around you to help you. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you guys so much again. Thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. Uh, this was scan number 3088 on Stop Child Abuse Now on NASCA. You can tune in on NASCA.org and, uh, and listen and look out again for that scan number 3088 to listen to the recording. And we just, again, we just want to thank everyone who joined us tonight. And uh, any last words, Ms. Kim, because we're closing out right now? No, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on and an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, you guys keep doing the work, God's work, and we appreciate all that you're doing. Keep rising up and in a voice for the voiceless. May God bless you. Thank you. Lord bless you too. Another tomorrow, because that's gone away.